0: You're listening to How to SaaS, the number one podcast to grow your cloud software company with marketing, sales, and customer success in just 10 minutes a day. Each episode will feature a tip, hack, or secret to take your SaaS company to the next level. And now, here's your host and growth strategist, Shiv Narayanan.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to today's episode. My guest today is Lars Lofgren, who is the head of growth at I Will Teach You To Be Rich. If you're familiar with that blog, it's headed up by Ramit Sethi, and Lars also worked at Kissmetrics is a former head of marketing, so he's had the pleasure of also working with Neil Patel and Hitlan Shah. So he's worked with three all-stars in the marketing space. I got to chat with Lars for about an hour about all the different things that he's done at both companies to engineer growth. One key difference of this episode is that the companies Lars has worked at have focused entirely on inbound marketing versus other SaaS companies where there's a mix between inbound and outbound, or just outbound itself. So when we're talking to Lars, we're talking about all the different things that he's done from an inbound perspective to do things like being able to drive 8,000 leads per month at Kissmetrics, how to engineer a blog that generates millions of monthly visitors, and we also do a deep dive into Lars's eight rules for A-B testing, and it's based on a famous blog post that he's written and trust me don't want to miss that part and in fact you may want to get all your marketing team members to listen to those rules because we cover so many mistakes that marketing teams make when they're A-B testing, how to avoid them and the best practices that lead to the kind of growth engine that Lars has built at Kissmetrics and now I will teach you to be rich. So have a listen and there's a lot for you to take away for your marketing practices and, and your operations and it can lead to a lot of growth for your company. Enjoy the episode guys. All right, Lars. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing well. Happy to be here. All right. So for the audience, why don't you start off with your background and we'll take it from there.
0: Yeah. So I used to lead the marketing team at Kissmetrics. Uh, a couple years ago and basically, you know, I started way back in the day as an entry level marketer just doing support videos and blog posts, you know, very bottom of the food chain. And um, at the end of it, I found myself leading the entire marketing team doing board meetings, getting in front of the VCs, the whole bit. Um, so that was a crazy ride. And then from there, I jumped over to a company called I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Uh, It's a really funny, great name, (laughs) and I now work with Ramit Sethi, building up his team and his company. And I run marketing over here.
1: So you basically work with two legends, right? Neil Patel and then Ramit Sethi, right after. Yeah,
0: yeah. Also spent a lot of time with Heaton Shaw. So uh, you know, it's uh, learned a lot from them, and they move at a crazy speed. Which, uh, yeah. So learned learned a tremendous amount over the last couple of years.
1: Uh, so, and, and when you took over the marketing, Neil had already left or or, or how did that work?
0: Yeah, no, I was, um, so I got to remember the exact timelines of everything. Um, but you know, as, as I was growing up through the ranks at one point, you know, our marketing got handed off to, to someone else. Um, and I reported to him for a while, then he moved on and then I kind of filled into the head of marketing role. So it wasn't directly into Neil's shoes, but it was shortly thereafter.
1: Nice. Okay, so uh, talk about Kissmetrics a little bit for the audience. What was the biggest thing you accomplished there? And, and I think, I mean, f- being where you, coming where you've come from, I think inbound marketing is a topic we should talk about and all the success that Kissmetrics has achieved and also Ramit's whole blog is entirely about inbound. So why don't we get mm-hmm. into that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I love a good inbound funnel. You know, I've worked on multiple sites with a million visitors a month and above. That's kind of my sweet spot. So growing that, um, driving leads, and then really managing that lead cycle, uh, whether it's B2B or B2C. Uh, so the probably the, what I'm most proud of at Kissmetrics, or sort of my, my claim to fame, is the year that I was personally responsible for our lead counts. We quadrupled our monthly leads. So it used to take us an entire quarter to do. We were doing every single month. And uh, that year, I basically knew we were going to hit our annual goal, I think three or four months into the year. And I knew we were going to hit it by like August or September or something like that. And I was feeling really good about myself. I was like, (laughs) ah, the rest of the year, we're just going to coast. This is great. And then my my boss, the head of marketing at the time, and the CEO come to me and say, "No, Lars, we're gonna ramp up your goals." I was like, I was so pissed, <laughs> I was so angry. I was like, "What do you mean?" I just like I just did some crazy work the last couple of months. I can't breathe. Yeah. Um, but they said, nope, we're gonna keep pushing." So I was like, "All right, fine." These new crazy goals, and uh, I went and hit those too. So. Uh, we got to a really good place by the end of the year.
1: And, and so how many leads – I remember you shared it with me before, but for the audience, yeah. like how, at, at your peak, how many leads were you bringing in per month at Kissmetrics? Oh, uh, we were doing about eight thousand a month. Eight thousand leads—that's incredible. Yeah. Right. So, so talk a little bit about how you get to a point where you're generating that kind of lead flow, right? We talk. I think a lot of SaaS experts talk about the fact that lead flow is the base on which mm-hmm. uh, month over month growth is built, right? You can talk about closing and pipeline and all those kinds of things, but lead flow is where it, it sits. So, mm-hmm. so talk about how you did that. What were the key drivers?
0: Yeah, so it's really like for me, and most of the business I work on, it's really like a at, a at a high level, it's it's two basic steps. The first step is putting in the the years of effort that it takes to build a very solid, high volume traffic um, inbound lead engine. You know, the Kissmetrics blog and that whole engine that was really you know eight ten years in the making. Uh, Remit site, I will teach also 10 years in the making. This stuff does not happen overnight, um, especially getting to you know a million visitors a month. Uh, you, you gotta put in the time way out in advance. And the team had done a lot of that work even before I joined, and then you know we, we kept going down that path. So that's the first big step is just taking the time to really build a high-volume inbound engine. And then once you have the traffic going really hardcore on the conversion optimization, all the A-B testing, um, and building out that funnel to make, you know, the, the, to get the absolute maximum uh, benefit from the traffic that you have. Uh, and, and, you know, driving our, a lot of the, a lot of the increases that I've had in liens um, throughout my career have been taking a, a high, volume traffic engine that has a modest amount you know that the, the conversions are okay but maybe not great and then really pushing those to the absolute limit um, and you know it's, it's not uncommon to you know double triple even quadruple lead flow on an asset without even having to increase the traffic at all so then if you get go both going at a fast clip, then you get into a really exciting space.
1: Right. Okay, so let's talk about the first one. And we'll come to the second one because I think that's probably where we'll spend the majority of this call. But that first one. So first of all, you're saying there's no shortcuts in generating traffic.
0: No, I really wish there were, but there are
1: not. <laughs> but but, but what, all, all these gurus out there are saying you can generate hundreds of thousands of visitors in like a month and stuff. So that's obviously not the case. So, but I think one thing to point out is that Kissmetrics or and I will teach you to be rich. They are doing something different, right? I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. it takes ten years. Obviously, it takes a lot of work. But what is the different about their content production process that leads to that many visitors on their blog?
0: Well, it's also um, you gotta remember the the time that some of these blogs started and how the game has changed, right? So, you know, I, I'll be honest, um, yeah. You know, at at Kissmetrics, you know Neil's very well known for his SEO and traffic generation. Uh, the 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 secret that most people don't know is at Kissmetrics, we had a pretty basic SEO strategy. In fact, we didn't really have one. <laughs> right? We we all we focused like let's do the basic technical, basic on-page SEO. Like yeah, we did we did that. We we made sure we weren't causing any problems. But we really only pushed in two directions at Kissmetrics. One was getting the quality. Of, of the post to a really solid level um, that that quality benchmark has definitely moved over the last years, but back then it wasn't that hard to come up with a one or two thousand dollar blog post and have it you know, or two thousand or two that one to two thousand word blog posts and have it stand out these days there's a lot more competition at that same quality benchmark but we sort of hit that benchmark. Um, and then just started ramping up frequency, right? We made sure that we shipped twice a week, then we went to three a week, then five a week, seven a week, ten a week, um, and that's where we started to cap out at, at frequency. So, you know, back then, the playbook on an inbound engine was was very straightforward you know you hit a modest amount on the quality lever and then you just ramp up frequency and this is this is what i used to tell people over and over and over again it's like don't worry about all the hardcore seo stuff focus on content quality and then ramp up frequency and i can tell you that the the game has changed (laughs) it is not that easy anymore
1: so, so how's how's it changed now
0: yeah. So these days, and this is a lot of the, the, the hard lessons, you know, I've been, I've been learning at my new role and our, our team has been learning is like, we can't just get the quality to a high level or even a modest level, and then just ramp up frequency. Uh, if Basically, if you're not willing to push to the absolute limit on all the core SEO disciplines, doing very targeted keyword research, doing a lot of intentional link building, uh, making sure that your technical and on-page SEO are at the absolute limit, um, staying very on top of any changes that are happening on the Google algorithms, and you're getting way out in front of that stuff, um, you're gonna have a really tough time competing, especially at these high-volume sites. You know, if you only needed, you know, a couple 10,000 visitors a month, maybe even 100,000, do you have to be as hardcore? No, you can kind of play that long tail game. But as soon as you want to go from 100,000 visitors up to a million and beyond, like you're going to have to go after the high volume keywords and the competitiveness uh, on either the, the mid tail or the the, uh, uh, the short tail have gotten um, tremendously difficult. So if if there is anything you can be do, doing on the SEO side, you basically have to do all of it and you have to do it at an incredibly advanced level and if you're not willing to play that game you should either you know walk down your traffic goals or find another game to play
1: yeah, so actually one topic I want to dig, dig a little bit deep, deeper on with you is the intentional link building. I actually have Neil coming on uh, Great. the podcast next week, I think, so I'm going to talk to him about that too. But talk about this this intentional link building, like what is the amount of work it takes? And also but for the audience, when you say short tail, you mean like, you know, not the super detailed keywords that Kissmetrics would rank for, but like the, a really short one, like analytics
0: yeah analytics or you know any anything that gets tens or hundreds of thousands of searches a month on google like Really high volume stuff.
1: So, what does it take to rank for something like that? Because that's where most of the visitors actually are. And when you get to hundred thousand visitors, I think a lot of SaaS companies are able to get there. I mean, we've gotten there too, and we have a great inbound engine. But to scale to the millions in terms of visitors, you do need to go after those keywords, right? So, so what is the kind of work that it takes, and how many people, hours, uh, exact work? Maybe go into that.
0: Yeah, so one, I'll say you should definitely pick Neil's brain on this, because he's much better at this than I am. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I will, I plan uh, to. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm usually the one asking him for advice. <laughs> uh, and he's, he, he plays at a very advanced level, and he's way out in front of, of most of the industry, he has been for a long time, and still is. So he's always finding new stuff, and he's he's got a lot of great things. I mean, honestly, we, we're building an entire team. Uh, we're actually building two teams right now. Uh, The first one is kind of that editorial side, just to push the absolute limit of the quality. We don't want anybody to be able to build better content than we can, right? Right. Uh, So pushing that to the limit. And then we're also building an entire team of marketers to manage that inbound engine, to do the link building, to do the keyword research, to manage the technical SEO, I got someone doing full-time link building and outreach just to drive as much of that as we possibly can. Um, and you know, we're, we're do, my assessment of where we're at right now. We're it's it's okay, right? But we need we're going to need to like keep going. Um, and if if Neil gives you guys any good insights, please pass them on to me because uh, my team's always looking for them.
1: Right, and and I think you know when you say you're doing okay, you're obviously thinking in terms of the standards of Neil Patel, but really by having a dedicated person who's focused on link build link building, you're you're way ahead of almost most content marketing teams because most content marketing teams are focused on just content production.
0: Yeah, what you'll find is uh, I have very high standards. Anyone on my team will tell me that. So my 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 C or B level is generally a lot of other people's A level. That's that's fine. Um, But yeah, so it's you know I've talked to other folks that do really really advanced link building at a really great way. I mean, most of it comes down to. Um, having really amazing networks that were built you know, years in advance so you can get the links from the amazing sites that you actually need because you know who to talk to um, and, and, and can get those requests in. Um, otherwise it's also just a lot of just a hustle and doing just it's like, like, like building a great you know, outbound SDR, SDR team or an outbound sales team. right? It's There's really no magic to it. It's just building folks that aren't going to quit, um, that can crank out a ton of volume on the outreach Iterate on that outreach, you know, so they can find that sweet spot on conversions and and people that are willing to fall through on your pitch. Uh, in this case, building the links, uh, but also just like we stay way or completely away from any of that spammy link building trick nonsense. Like we won't get anywhere near it. It's just authentic links, natural links, and just putting in the hard work up front um, to get those in any way that that we think we can.
1: Right, and so for the audience, like I think. There's definitely people listening that understand what link building is, but may not know it at the level at which you guys are playing, right? So talk about maybe the process at a, on a very basic level. When you're reaching out and trying to build these links, what does that look like? And what are you saying in the emails? Uh, how many people are you emailing? And those kinds of things.
0: Yeah. So it's at a basic level, it's, well, there's a couple of angles or you could probably take. One is it's finding people, you know, if you have a decent brand that's being talked about a little bit, you're going and staying really on top of the mentions. Right? That anytime someone talks about you, people will talk about you and in a lot of cases they won't add a link. So then you immediately follow up and say, Hey, thanks for reaching out. We loved your post. We we just posted on our, our Facebook account or our Twitter. Thought it was amazing. By chance, could you add a link to us? And be even better if you could add a link to this particular page. And that particular page happens to be something you you really care about, and is a hot, is a competitive page and a high volume keyword that you're going after. Um, so doing basic stuff like that, um, also being really intentional with the domains that you're going after, like this is not like spray and pray. Uh, you know, how can you like punch up? right um how can you go after keywords that have more authority or domains with more authority than you have and you know what's you know building relationships with those folks journalists we spend a lot of time on doing coffee dates with journalists building those relationships so we can get a lot of links coming from business insider Forbes whatever it may be and those folks like we're not requesting those links every time um, but we've We've you know, given value to those folks. We've helped them write their stories or helped build their stories to make their job easier. And then they want to link to their stuff. They're bought into our vision. They're bought into where we're going as a company. And they're more likely to you know, include links. I mean, we, we'll do you know, hundreds of outreach emails a month. Um, and we're, we're trying to push that as far as it'll go. And then also zero in and, and make sure the, uh, uh, we, we get as many conversions out of those emails as we can.
1: Right. And in one thing you mentioned there that I want to maybe follow up on is uh, you said uh, domains that have higher authority than you. So that's when we're talking about even PR-level publications, right, like the going after the Forbes, the Business Insiders, and those kinds of publications. Do you guys focus on things like that at all?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, do, do you mean using PR to get in those or just focusing on them for placements?
1: Just focusing on them for placements. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so we have relationships with Business Insider, um, Entrepreneur, Forbes a little bit. Um, so we're, we're regularly getting links and shout-outs on, on platforms like that.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and for platforms like that, is the process different? Uh, is it harder to get in there for, uh, for people that are listening that maybe are considering you know, trying to get higher domain authority websites to link back to their sites?
0: Yeah, obviously the higher the domain authority, the more difficult it is. Remember, I was talking about you know kind of there's there's a couple ways play the network game. You can play the outreach game. The outreach game works. You know the smaller the site that you're going after, right? So um, you know the higher up you go, you know the you know, journalists get hit constantly with all sorts of random stuff. They're not going to go take a time to update a link from six months ago. They got more important things to do, and they're getting hit with a ton of requests. Some smaller blogger that's just like um, really excited that you saw their blog post. And uh, is is even more excited that you know you know they already follow you they already respect what you're doing and then you just featured them on your own Twitter account like yeah they're you know they're gonna get excited by that some journalist doesn't care right so um, you kind of gotta scale it up and down and usually how I, I frame it to my team is like we gotta trade up the chain right so there's. Uh, there's a certain level where we can always hit a perfect success rate in those easy, easy opportunities. Let's go pick those up. There's also that level of you know where we're right at bat. You know, it's at, folks that are at the same level as we are. Uh, we can kind of do some basic trades. We don't have to go super hard. You know, it's not going to be a perfect success rate, but you know we'll do well. And then there's going up the chain or punching up. That's where you got to get more creative. That's where you got to build the relationships way out in advance. Um, and none of that stuff happens quickly. Uh, the best. You know, advice I'd have is if you're really trying, if that's a key part of your outreach and your link building, your SEO, uh, your PR, whatever it is, focus on building the relationships, building the network. Uh, the cold outreach is not going to be nearly as successful.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, you mentioned the idea of having this editorial team that's focused heavily on quality. Um, define quality, right? Well, so one of the mm-hmm. Neil's Claims to fame is that he's top two ranked for online marketing on Google, yeah. right? <laughs> so, uh, what 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 is does what quality take in today's day, day and age? And uh, you know, how long do posts have to be? What types of influencers do you need to include? You know, things like that. Like, what mm-hmm. is the editorial team working at uh, on at IWT?
0: Yeah, so you know, this, this is one of those other games that uh, has gotten a lot harder in the recent years. It used to be just write a Write a pretty solid like 2000 word blog post, and you're good. Uh, that is that is not good enough anymore. Um, and actually, I'm going to probably say something or, or that mo- that isn't in the list of most best practices or advice that's floating around. I what I see right now is there's a lot of people trying to get into inbound, and the majority of them just don't have anything interesting to say. Right. Um, So they just sort of regurgitate the same best practices, a lot of me too content or maybe like a slight twist, like here's a six step process to build your blog. Like no one's no one cares. Right. That's not new. People have hit that so many times Um, and there's not nearly as many people that can look at their category and or their audience their market and actually say something interesting um and then he's like of course you know you're not going to get the traffic you're not going to get the mentions you're not going to get you know whatever and i think building up the experience um, really spending some time to kind of formulate some opinions that are counterintuitive, that are unique, coming up with a unique voice. And you know, that's something that Ramit has done exceptionally well. Uh, Neil and Heaton are also very good at this. They have a lot of counterintuitive opinions and strong opinions on different topics. And that really helped Kissmetrics early on um, and still helps them with their own careers. Uh, and that, that's something I try to focus on. I try to not say the same thing everyone else is saying. So it's really understanding your space, um, kind of all the standard stuff that's already being said. and then how can you push that into new territory? How can you say something that hasn't been said already? Does that make sense?
1: It does. It does. and and that's kind of what you're talking about, which Joe Polizzi from content uh, marketing world or that, that conference he says like, it's your content tilt right like what's the angle that you're taking mm-hmm. that's different than everybody else but what about what about the content itself like is it is it longer form you know how much more time is going into it uh yeah is it uh, citing more resources like uh, wh- what's changed there compared to before where you, maybe a 500 uh, word blog post could rank
0: yeah so uh Basically longer is generally better. At least that's how I look at it. What I'm really using, so the benchmark I, I really look at is, especially on the high volume keywords, the keywords that you know you got to be competitive with, you, you want to get a good sense for what is the bar on quality with that keyword, right? You can't, your bar of quality is not going to be the same across your entire block. Right? It's not just that you can't use these just like four rules and then your editorial team can just crank out posts. Um, you know, maybe that, you know, mid-tail, long-tail, sure, that works. But in the high-volume stuff, you're going to have to be much more intentional about it. So you're like, okay, we're trying to go after this keyword, gets a ton of traffic, super competitive to get on the first page. What is everybody else doing? And now you need a plan to increase the quality bar on your post, Um by a good 50% beyond what everybody else is already doing on that keyword, right? So a 10% improvement on quality is not going to work. A 20% improvement is not going to work. How can you like somebody should be going through that first page, hit your page and then immediately say to themselves, this is the result that I wanted, right? This is so much better than everything else in this list. If you answer that question, you'll answer your question for what the quality needs to be.
1: Right. No, and I, I really like that. That the the bar for quality depends on the keyword and the competition that's out there. Like if you're yeah. searching for a super long tail keyword that doesn't really have that much competition, maybe a 500 word post will do. But when you're searching for something like best business schools, then well, you're competing mm-hmm. with Forbes. Forbes is putting out yes. a new ranking every single year, right? And they're always ranked number one there. So that's yep. great. Um, okay reversing back to the first thing that you said, which was, this is actually two parts. The first is years Mm -hmm. of effort and building out a lot of high volume content. And over 10 years, you'll you'll generate the traffic you need. And the second part is a hardcore focus on conversion optimization and A-B testing. So talk Mm -hmm. about at a generic level, the A-B testing, and how how does your team focus on that? What's the process look like?
0: Yeah. So the, the rule of thumb I use is that I can take Give me an asset, a blog, a pop-up on a blog, a homepage, uh, a key sign-up page, whatever it may be. I can usually double or triple lead flow or, you know, the basic conversion rate on that page um, within a 9 to 12-month period if I have a chance to use my program. And my program, I only need a small team to do it. Uh, You know, one designer and two engineers is really all it takes. And... Um, I need to keep them 100% focused on running back-to-back A-B tests. And with a team like that, I can actually go after multiple assets at a time, usually four to five. And the program that we run is high-volume A-B testing. Uh, again, back-to-back, relentless A-B testing, no gaps, uh, nonstop testing. And I have a kind of a framework that I give them to help them make decisions on their A-B tests, what to kill and what to keep because um, the key high level uh, point that people really need to take home here is that it's when you're trying to improve conversion rates, it's not about a single test, right? right? If you need to get your improve your conversion rates up, and you only have one test to do it, like you've already failed. <laughs> right. uh, like You know, at my win rates at Kissmetrics, only 30% of my A-B tests were actually winners. And that was with me getting to like, Pick Heaton's brain every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific about what AB tests he think actually won, and he's really good at this stuff. And he's done even more testing than I have, right? thirty percent,
1: thirty percent of tests winning is actually super high, by the way. It is very high. It's yeah.
0: very, very high right now. Me and my team are about twenty, twenty-two somewhere in there. Um, and you know, most people I talk to that are beginners or a little, you know, or a little earlier on this stuff, you know, it's like ten percent is more than normal. Um, and I've asked around a lot of folks, folks that. You would recognize and you know of, and you know the twenty percent is very common. Um, so you know the minority of your tests are going to be winners, which means you really need to ramp up the volume in, in order to run enough tests to find a couple of those winners. And you know I have my my seven rules to kind of how to do that, and um, you know we can we can run through each of them if you want. But at the end of the day, let's run through um, them. All right, awesome. Let me, let me pull it up and make sure I don't get any of them wrong. Um, but the, the first couple of steps are just – actually, so the first big rule that everyone should keep in mind, and this is a big mistake that people make when they, when they A-B test for the first time. When I'm A-B testing, I am not here to, defi- to find a definitive answer. Okay, right. I, you know, it's, it's not a we have two variants and we need to find out which one is better. No, 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 no. It's we have a control. And until proven otherwise, the control stands. Right. So the burden of proof is on the variant to beat the control. And if you don't get enough data to determine that, then you throw away the variance, you keep the control, and you move on to your next test, your next variant, your next hypothesis. That's a, right. that's,
1: that's a really important one because what a lot of times yes. what happens is that even if the control is winning but not by a uh, probability that's significant, Mm -hmm. people will still choose the variant the control yes and
0: it's so dangerous it's so dangerous over the long term and what i hear from a lot of people and i've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs a lot of founders again companies you've recognized and you know i ask them how their A/B testing program is going and it's like yeah it kind of worked a little bit and then it didn't work so much it kind of you know the conversion rates would bounce up they'd come back down that is such a common story and the reason that happens and, you know, basically your conversion rates, you know, in those situations look like a wave. Right. Right. And the reason that happens is because they're not being disciplined with statistical significance and when to make changes. So what happens is. They introduce way too much volatility into their system. Some of those tests end up being a winner, but some of them end up being false winners and actually end up being losers. I've had so many tests that early on in the data looked like a winner, would even hit 96 or 97% statistical significance, and that's very easy to do at low data volumes. And then you let it run another week or you let it run a month, and by the end of that period, it's actually... a completely flipped on me and has gone from a 10% lift to a 10% decline. Well, if you make too many of those mistakes, basically you need to start stacking your wins and then they come right back down because you've introduced false winners. So it's not about what happens to your conversion rate this month or next month. It's what happens to your conversion rate over the entire year. My conversion rates do not act like a wave. That never happens to me. My conversion rates move like a staircase. So I get a win You know, it gives me a pop. I keep the pop. And then there's this plateau where I'm working through a bunch of other tests, a lot of dead ends. You know, we try a lot of things, a lot of stuff doesn't work. That's fine. Um, But we're really disciplined on not making changes until we're confident. And then we finally find another winner a couple months later, six months later, whatever it ends up being. And then, boom, we get another permanent uptick. You stack a couple of those together throughout the year. That's how you double your conversions or even triple them.
1: And you can even technically take steps back on that staircase if you are not waiting for statistical significance. Yes.
0: Yeah, then it turns into that wave, right? So you get that staircase up, you get that plateau, but instead of finding that next staircase, you come right back down.
1: Right, right. That's great. Okay. Number two, let's do this. this is yeah, awesome. number
0: two is data volume, right? So generally, you know, I won't even be, this. This is a you need a lot of data to run through these assets. And if you're a smaller startup or you know smaller traffic early on, you generally I, I won't try to build this program. Uh, you know, most of the funnels I work on have a million visitors a month and above. And even I, at different steps of the funnel, still struggle to get all the data I need. So if you don't have thousands of people running through a particular asset within thirty days, so if you want to AB test your homepage. You need at least 2,000 people hitting that homepage every month. Preferably, I'd much rather have 20,000. Um, so 2,000 is doable. It's super low. It's not great. Um, three to five is better. 20 is great, right? And then, of course, uh, the more the more you can get, the better. But um, don't even try if you have a low volume asset. You don't have thousands of people moving through it every month. Don't even try A/B EV testing. You're never going to get. You're never going to be able to run the volume that you need to. Uh, rule number three is always wait at least a week. Okay, and this is this is part of the rules I introduced to kind of protect. We're trying to avoid those highly volatile mistakes that can happen at low data volumes. Uh, always wait a week because things uh, you know in the first couple of days things are all over the place. And this is where I see a uh, test flip flop on me the most often is those first couple of days. I think I have a winner. A week later, it turns into a loser. Right, so. Don't make decisions until you have run it for at least a week. Uh, Rule number four, and this is where I diverge from the uh, conversion optimization community as a whole. So, you know, the standard out there is only make changes or pick a winner based on 95% statistical significance. Uh, As online marketers, we have missed a critical piece of the scientific method and statistical significance is just statistics as a whole. 95% statistical significance works, only if you calculate your sample size ahead of time. Uh, but Shiv, let me ask you how many, you know, all the experience you have with, with testing and everybody that you know runs tests, how many times have you seen someone calculate the sample size they need for their test before they start running the test? Almost never. Exactly. I've never seen anyone do it. Um, I, well, actually, I, I know uh, one guy, Kevin Hillstrom. Uh, if you guys don't read his blog, you absolutely should. Uh, you know, he'll do that. He's very methodical with his testing. Uh, you know, he worked at Nordstrom and Lanzan and did a lot of catalog marketing database. Marketing Sorry, his name. His name is Kevin Hillstrom. Hillstrom, yes, uh, I think mindthatdata or mindthatdata.com, something like that. That's his blog. Um, so he'll do it. You know, I'll calculate sample size occasionally. I'll find someone that does, but for the most part, no one does this, and no one has any idea how to do it. Like a designer doesn't want to go calculate the sample size they need, or an engineer, like a copywriter. They don't know how this works. They don't want to know how it works. So you know, 95% statistical significance gets very Unreliable and low data volumes—that's the problem. You get enough data, and yeah, it's great. And at Kissmetrics, you know, me and our, our data scientists at the time did a bunch of long-term modeling on you know different A/B testing strategies. What happens if you use 95% digital significance and are always methodical with the sample size? What happens if you just use 99? percent statistical significance. What happens if you use 95 and you're not methodical with the sample size ahead of time? And we basically modeled out the conversion rates and how big of a wave are, you know, do, do things play out over, you know, millions and millions and millions of visitors over, you know, a, a 12-month period. And what we found is you know 95% statistical significance if you calculate the sample size is still really solid. It, it, it does exactly what, um, what you'd expect it to do. However, if you relax the requirement on sample size and just play fast and loose at low data volumes, then you get the wave. Um, problem is, again, you know, getting people to calculate that sample size is a pain in the ass. No one does it. Uh, so a good hack for this, or a good rule that gives you the same result but is easier for your teams to follow, is instead of using 95% statistical students and sample size, just use 99% statistical standing uh, It cuts out a lot of that volatility at low data volumes. It's not perfect. Even 95 plus sample size isn't perfect, but they're pretty, it gets you to a much healthier spot and, and reduces uh, enough of that volatility to get you from that wave into the staircase. Um, so that's actually a really key piece in my program and I hammer my teams on that. So, you know, uh, some of my teams will use 95 Percent because they have lower data volumes, but if they're doing that, they're calculating sample size ahead of time.
1: Yeah, and the reason this is just so important is that at smaller sample sizes, the variance is a lot higher, right? And the data yes. can be completely misreported. Uh, and I think a bigger issue here is just that uh, people and marketing teams in general are are just more impatient. If something is winning. Mm-hmm. It's like well if we turn if we turn it on sooner to the thing that's winning, then more people will be coming through that, and we'll increase our conversion rates for the whole population, but then you are sacrificing accuracy, and you get that wave
0: yeah, and what people forget or don't realize is on any of these conversion rates when you get when you're looking at your variant it's like oh it's a you know, it might be a ten percent winner that's just a guess. There is actually a very wide range of outcomes, right? It can be anything from plus 30% to negative 30%, um, or negative 20%, and plus 10 is just the most likely outcome. But at low data volumes, that spread of outcomes is actually really wide. And A-B testing tools, A-B reporting tools, don't do a great job at kind of showing that, you know, the full range of outcomes. And to be honest, we, we tried to build a tool like this at. Kismet- and we realized is no one understands that stuff, even if you try to show it. So we, we actually didn't even uh, end up building it. Um, so it's very counterintuitive. It's very hard to understand. Probability as a whole is very counterintuitive. Um, so just realize that you know even if something feels... Well, you know, you get 86% statistical significance. That's actually a very wide range of outcomes. That's that's. It feels like a lot because 80% that feels high. It's a majority, but it's actually it's not. There's only a couple people. Um, or a, uh, here, here's a good way to explain it. Um, that, that 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 tends to resonate with people. Like let's take uh, 90% statistical significance. All that really means is that there's a room of 10 people. Nine of them say there's a difference. One of them says there isn't. Okay. Now let's take 99. Now if the first time you see you go from 90 to 99, it feels like, oh, it's just 10%. Right. It feels like it's just a small improvement. It's not. It's actually an order of magnitude. It's actually going from a room of 10 people to a room of 100 people. 99 saying there's a difference. Only one. Saying there isn't a difference, right? So it's it's an order of magnitude from ninety to ninety nine percent statistical significance, um, and even like ninety five to ninety nine feels like a small improvement. But again, it's a huge gulf. It's a room of twenty people to a room of a hundred people, right? Still a huge improvement on you know your, your your confidence level and the likelihood that that outcome that you're seeing in your test results is actually going to be the outcome when you go live, right? Right. Okay. Number five. So the next kind of couple of rules is, um, you know, the downside of pushing to 99 and being really disappointed with your data is it can be it can take a while to get there. Right. So in order to get the high volume testing that you really need to do this right and to get the the, the number of tests into the program in order to find enough winners is you got to be comfortable killing tests. So the next two rules get into this, and you know, so we'll tweak these rules depending on the exact situation, but they're good rules of thumb. Um, you know, if a test drafts below a 10% lift or it looks like a marginal win or just a small win, it's not going to really move the needle. We kill it, okay? Um, and the reason we do that is why spend six months chasing a 6% win when you can cycle through another dozen tests, and find a 30 or 40 percent win I would much rather cycle through and find that bigger winner instead of just spinning my wheels going after a small win um, and the next rule sorry before you get there just yes I've
1: seen this mistake made a lot of times because you get attached mm-hmm. to the outcome yes you, know, you get attached to this new design that you made this new idea that you had and you're like "What well, if I just give it a little bit more runway it'll prove that it's better but who nope. gives, who gives, <laughs> even if it does, who gives a shit? If it's like a 6% uh, mm-hmm. like increase on whatever was there before, it's not really changing your life, right? Yeah. You, you need to find the thing that doubles it.
0: Yeah, and honestly, most tests that uh, really move the funnel, they start strong and they stay strong chasing wins every once in a while i get a winner that way but it's it's really rare so you got to be comfortable just walking away and we walk away from all sorts of stuff we've walked away from you know 10 11% lifts at 97% certainty just because we were like you know what it's we've been, we spent too much time on this test already we got to kill it and move on to the next idea so on average how much time do you give a test before you So you kill- here- yeah, so here's the next rule. Remember, so we're going to run every test for at least a week, but we're not going to let a test run for more than 30 days. So, you know, if if a, if a test drops below a 10% expected lift or it's been running for 30 days, if you hit either of those conditions, you kill the test and move on.
1: Beautiful. Love it. And then if in that time it's not... Not there? That's You're killing it and, and just finding another series of tests to run? Yes.
0: Yeah, you keep the control. Remember, the burden of proof is on the variant. So at any point, you have to kill a test early, even for any other reason. You know, you got some... Uh, You got to change out the infrastructure. You got to do a redesign some promos happening or something's happening in the company You got to shut something down if you kill a test early for any reason you keep the control Uh, That leads us into our last rule and I'm actually going to give you a a bonus eight rule (laughs) That isn't on my blog um, that we're using on my team right now So rule number seven is you're always building the next test right no downtime between tests uh, if you shut a test down, you immediately have the next test ready to go to bring it up. So as the test is running, your team is working on building the next batch of tests. And like I said, no downtime between tests. Um, now, rule number eight is... And so, so b- a- before you get to number yes. eight on this yes. topic, so basically
1: you're you're building a framework. And that's why you said if I have a team with one designer and two developers, you can cycle through these tests as quickly as? Yep, enough, Non-stop. Right? So, so teams that don't have that, like how do you build this framework? What does that process look like that they have this backlog that's working through? Or if they have fewer resources, how would you orchestrate that?
0: Uh, well, one, I, I don't is the <laughs> point. <laughs> uh, so or I, like, I, let's I,
1: say they do. Let's say they do. How, what does the process look like to orchestrate uh, these tests and, and make sure everybody's working uh, and having this backlog ready?
0: Yeah, so basically, you know, and this is what we were doing on my team for a while. You know, I I actually run multiple teams now. One of my teams, we call it an optimization team. It's it's a growth team, you know, just a a team that runs a lot of these A-B tests. For the bulk of last year, what we did is set a quota for them, an input goal. This right, so is a good good tip on management. You have your output goals, revenue, leads, traffic, whatever it is, You know things that, that move the business but you don't ultimately control. Then you have input goals, stuff that you actually move, can ship and you have control over. Well, output is the conversion rate right? for your leads, signups, demos, whatever it is, and your input is the number of A-B tests that you're running. So if you have all these rules in place, you have the A-B testing infrastructure, you have a team in place to run this, then you give them a very basic goal. Um, X number of A-B tests every month. And, you know, we should, we did eight for the, the bulk of last year, which is a pretty reasonable number. We could have we would probably ramped that up quite a bit, although we were also working on a lot of other projects. So they weren't just doing A-B tests. They were, they were cranking out a lot of other campaigns as well. Um, and even with that, that split in responsibility, uh, we were still hitting eight each and every single month. Um, and you know that keeps the pipeline fresh. Um, the other thing that I would uh, highly recommend that managers or CEO, founders, whoever uh, is working with these teams on is – the, the important thing is to set constraints on the assets that are being tested. Don't let your time, don't give your team full reign to test any asset on your company, because you need to focus on the assets that are going to move the funnel. And different assets are completely different. Um, you know, uh, the the size of the lever is completely different. Like if I double the conversion rate on some landing page, that's giving me 10 leads a month, do do I care? Absolutely not, I don't care. But if I can double the confirmation, or the uh, conversion rate on a confirmation page, uh, which is exactly, we didn't double it, but we did lift it significantly um, at at I Will Teach. You know, we have a double opt-in process. Every new email subscriber goes through a confirmation page. And it used to be about 62%, 63% on confirmation rate from email subscriber to confirmed email subscriber. We took that to 82%, and I think a little under a year, something nine months, something like that. And again, we didn't double it, but we also had a much, much higher conversion rate right out of the gate. But we basically increased that conversion rate by a third. But the reason that was so important is because that page hit every single email subscriber on every single channel across multiple sites. So you're hitting everyone with one asset. Uh, if you have a SaaS business, what are a couple of your core assets? Homepage, page, pricing, product page, your sign-up page, um, your onboarding flow. Those assets everyone goes through. If you have a blog, what is your main CTA? Usually the pop-up. Or your core CTA at the end of the post. Focus on those CTAs, those conversion levers, those choke points that hit the the vast bulk of your leads. That's where you want to spend your time A B testing. So work through your business funnel, find like the five choke points that um, you need to really focus your team on, and then tell them that. Okay, here's the five assets we're gonna test for the next year. I want two A-B tests on each of these assets every single month. So we're gonna set a goal of 10 A-B tests every month. You have to ship those tests. Those are our input goals. I'm gonna get pissed if you guys don't run those tests. Um, you're more flexible on the conversion rates because it's a little outside your control. And then you, know, you basically plan on – you know at a high level or at a leadership level, you basically assume that you'll double your conversion rate on those assets by the end of the year if you stay focused and really carry it through the 9 to 12 months.
1: How, how do you decide on the scope of these experiments? Like y- – y- there, there's people that recommend that you should test button color and, and oh, one hell like hell that. No, <laughs> yeah, so 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 exactly. So what what is what is the scope you recommend? Yeah, I think it's an important so,
0: point to hit. This is something I learned from Heat and Shaw, and it, it's still the same thing that I teach my teams, and, and it's it's definitely the right way to do things. The more I play this, so you want to when you're thinking about tests, you want to play the extremes. So you're either going really small and testing one element at a time, or you're going really big and doing a complete revamp, you know, go big, go like major hypotheses, go in a completely different direction. Do not play the middle. Uh, When I try to play the middle, and this is where almost everyone starts. But when I try to play the middle, that's when I lose. That's when I launch losers. That's when my conversion rates start taking a hit. And on top of that, if you think about it, you can't learn if you play the middle.
1: Explain right? explain what the middle is. Give
0: me the an example. middle is um, this is this is actually my worst this this uh, gave me the worst A B test I've ever run that actually like tanked the sales funnel at Kissmetrics for uh, <laughs> by like thirty <30%. laughs> percent. Okay. It was a, it was a test on the pricing page. So um, and, and everyone on your team, like they're going to they're gonna look at any asset, the homepage, the pricing page, the product page, and they're like, oh, this thing is, this is a, it's a piece of shit. I know how to fix this. Right. And they're going to go in and they're going to make like five to ten tweaks. They're gonna they're gonna touch this up here. They're gonna tweak that copy over there. They're gonna rearrange things just a little bit. And this is exactly what I did the pricing page um, at Kissmetrics. I didn't I didn't fundamentally like really change it. Right? I was like I'm just gonna clean it up. You know, it's confusing. No one on no one on the team really likes it. We're just, just gonna clean it up. And uh, did I have a hypothesis? Like, does, is cleaning it up a hypothesis? No, <laughs> of course it's, not. It's, it's it's I don't like it, and I'm gonna. I'm going to go find a version that I like, right? It's not about the customer. It's not about the market. It's not about validating an assumption or disproving a hypothesis. It's just um, I don't like the way it is and I want it to go do my version and that that's play in the middle. And I tried this on the pricing page. <laughs> my, uh, our team loved it. Our sales guys loved it. Uh, everyone, the leadership team loved it. Everyone agreed that it was clear, made more sense and we ran it as an AB test. And I literally cut the sales funnel, not just lead flow, the whole sales funnel <laughs> by thirty percent. Um, and and no one even believed me. Like like when we started seeing the hit on the sales funnel, like it took me a while to actually figure out it was my A/B test. Um, and uh, so it's like, and, and I see that over and over again. Anytime I, I like I, someone asks me to like audit a home page, I don't even do that nonsense anymore. Um, like, like, like I, uh, I have things that have worked for me in the past, but I don't know if they'll work again. So I either isolate the elements so I really know whether or not it's helping or I try to just get myself into a whole other area entirely by testing some major hypothesis. And I go with a much bigger experiment to go after that hypothesis. So I do one of the two, but I don't just try to refine a page just because I don't personally like it.
1: Right, right. No, that's really, really, really good advice. Number Number eight.
0: Yeah, and this is uh, this is not on my blog, and this isn't. I think I might have a deck somewhere that gets into the eight, but uh, this is something we've realized that I will teach, and I started to realize it at Kissmetrics too. If you run a hardcore conversion optimization program, all the folks that you know get good at this this program, they'll start. You'll you'll notice a habit. They get really nervous about launching anything if you don't A B test, and that's a good habit to get into. However, there, there there's some downsides. Um, you know, if you need to go change the infrastructure of your site, if you need to make some brand changes, if there's some long term wins, you need to be going after as a company, even if you're getting short term hits, sometimes you just need to take the hit, right? Uh, Like conversions be damned. We got to move forward on this. There's not that many of them, but there's a, there's a couple every year, right? So what my team and I started to do is we started calling these tests, you know, brand tests or basically just non-conversion tests, where the goal isn't a conversion lift, right? We're not trying to get a win. We're not trying to get 99% statistical statements. We have an ulterior goal for this change, and we're not expecting it to impact conversions. So we'll call it a brand test, and what that means is we're going to run it through an A-B test just to double check it, right? We're, we're, we don't want to tank our funnel and we're gonna get some data to at least you know, uh, reduce the probability of that happening. But even if we end up you know, uh, reducing the conversion slightly, like that's okay, and, and we're just gonna double check it in an A-B test. But we're not gonna to try to get to 99% statistical significance and as long as things look comparable and uh, the variant is, is in the same league as the control, we're gonna make the change because we have some other goal for the business, um, some larger vision or long-term strategy here. Now there's one important key to this, which is if you're going to run tests like this, you have to declare it before you start the test. Because everyone, this is why I get so rigid with all my other rules, is when you start A-B testing, everyone will try to rationalize why their winner should be the actual way and why they should launch it anyway like oh we didn't get a conversion win but man this is much better for our brand <laughs> <that actually> <laughs> Yeah. right like what the hell like, no you're 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 using the excuse of a brand for your own personal feelings or it right? looks
1: better i like yeah, it, it more. looks better like
0: looks better to you but yeah. it, that, like what, what do our customers think that's the only opinion that matters here and if they really thought it looked better they would have done something we get there'd be feedback there'd be um your engagement would have changed something would have, nothing's changing so why why do we assume it's actually better? Um, so, you know, all of us, even I do it, you know, even my, my personal tests, my babies, I'm like, ah, I really wish we could still launch this. So recognize that we all have this tendency and, Uh, force yourselves to be disciplined on, you know, before the test launch, you have to decide what is the goal? Is it a conversion goal or is it, you know, a non-conversion goal, a brand goal, a long-term goal? And if it's a long-term goal, that's fine. You can be looser on the constraints and launch the variants, even if you don't get a conclusive answer. But if you are doing a conversion test, stick to the rules. Be disciplined. Even if you like it, kill it and try again. I like
1: that. Stick to the rules if you're doing a conversion test and don't ask any questions. And just, yeah. just do whatever <laughs> Lars says. <laughs> I
0: don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm wrong just as often as anybody else. But, uh, this program, I've, I've built this over a number of years in multiple companies and it, is, it has served me well.
1: Do you have a uh, blog post with these rules?
0: Yeah, if you guys just search for seven rules for A-B testing or if you go to my blog, LarsLofgren.com. The blog's a little quiet these days. I get pretty busy. Um, but that test is live. The seven rules, not the eighth, but the seventh rules are on that post. You guys can read through
1: them. I'll, I'll share it on the podcast episode post as well. Awesome. That's great, man. Uh, last question. What advice do you have? Because the, the thing about Lars is that he's managed teams that are focused – hundred percent on inbound right and a lot of sas companies are built with the sdr slash outbound model and there's obviously a lot of juice within this area as well like wild apricot has been built completely on inbound too and whenever i tell people that they're shocked that we grew to 13 million based on just inbound so what advice do you have for people that are you know dabbling or dipping their toe in the water in inbound and what the potential can be if they actually dedicate their resources to something like this?
0: Well, uh, I guess I don't have anything that encouraging to say. Like, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is a long-term, like I said, remember, yeah, yeah. All, all the blogs I've worked on 10 years in the making. Right like, Now, if I went and started my own company tomorrow, would I go build an inbound engine? Yes. Uh, but there's a, there's a couple reasons why. One is I love playing long-term games. No one else can, like wants to play them. Right? Everyone else, even if they say they like long-term, they go after the short-term stuff. We're like the, the, the pressure is just too great. I know I can resist that pressure. I know I can keep going um, when everybody else quits. So it's a game that plays to my strengths. On top of that, it's also a game I just really enjoy, right? It's uh, it's teaching, it's providing value up front, it's entertaining people. Um, I, it's, I, I People tell me I have interesting things to say, apparently. So, you know, I, I tend to find uh, uh, I, I, opinions that are counterintuitive and I you communicate that and I enjoy doing that. And I, I enjoy finding pain points and kind of, um, uh, you know, pushing people in directions they might not be comfortable going or going against the norm, like all, all that's... You Uh, a a pleasurable experience to me. So I enjoy building these funnels. Uh, So I place my strengths. I enjoy it. I'm also pretty good at it. I've spent a lot of time working on these funnels. So I know the game. Um, And so that's why I would do it. Other people, you know, honestly, like if if you're trying to get to that first 10 million in ARR or above, uh, the main advice I tell folks is, well, one, pick the channel that plays your strengths. Two, when you finally do find one channel that works double down on it okay keep doubling down on that channel uh the biggest mistake people make at that 1 million mark the 10 million mark Too many channels yeah just too many channels uh that's the one thing i do over and over again is just hack out channels um so the channels we are playing in are channels that we can compete at the top level and win
1: yeah i think getting to that 10 million or even 1 million mark where you're doing your best to survive playing your strengths i think that's a definitely the right advice. Long-term, I think you're absolutely right there as well, as building a content engine takes time. But if you have the stamina, it's kind of like that red ocean, blue ocean thing that Tony Robbins mm-hmm. talks about, is if you put in the time and you're good enough and you have good enough content, there's literally nobody else around if, you, yeah. if you're doing it for five to 10 years, right? So yep. there's a lot to be gained there. And at the end of it, unlike anything else, where like with sales, the only way to scale sales is to make more phone calls and to have yep. more salespeople. Whereas with content that's an asset that you've built that's going to keep paying you dividends uh, mm-hmm. for, for mm-hmm. years to come. So it's totally worth it. Um, yep. Last but not least, man, I just want to thank you. This was an awesome interview. Really appreciate you taking the time IWT and Kissmetrics have done some amazing things when it comes to inbound and you're like a fire hose of knowledge when it comes to <laughs> thank uh, you. a lot of the inbound stuff. So I, I had a great time having you on. So, uh, and thanks a lot for doing this.
0: Yep. Happy to.
1: That's it for today's episode, guys. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes and to check us out at www.howtosass.com, and we will see you next time.